Hello there, it's me, Phil Ryan again, welcoming you back to the Story High podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know how it all works, but if you're just joining us, we are the home of amazing audio stories. And in our regular weekly podcast, we'll be shooting the breeze, especially on this one, on the world of writing, and then we're going to be playing you three short fiction stories. And we think that's going to lift your day. Now, as we always note, the stories are quite short. That's deliberate. They run 16, 18, 19, 20 minutes, some a little bit longer. But it's designed so you can just sort of fit them in as you you know want to, maybe through lunch or just as a little break. Just chill out, put your headphones on and lose yourself in a little bit of an adventure. Now, when I said I was going to talk about the writing today, I always like to say, why don't you try it? It's an interesting one as a writer. I say to everybody, it's not difficult. Give it a go. And so I'm going to set you the first of many challenges that this podcast is hoping to get you to take up. And it's called the four sheet challenge. So all I want you to do, take a short personal story, something that's happened to you. And just with four A4 pages, so you don't get thousands and thousands of words. It's not like trying to write a novel. See what you can do. And remember, beginning, middle and end. And whatever the ending is, try and make it as interesting as you can and maybe share it with your friends and family. Give it a go. Yeah, I mean, you'd be really surprised at what you can do and it's very satisfying. If you're interested on TikTok, and that's Story Hive there again, we're actually giving out writing tips. So if you wanted to get into writing, you should follow us over there and just watch because every day there's a new how to write tip and you, and you build into a little episode. And again, it's completely free, which I think is pretty brilliant. Now, all the stories, as you know, are on our main platform, www.thestoryhive.co.uk. So go over there, have a look. Anyway, without any further faff and running around, here's the first story from today's three-story collection. And this one's called Lucky Seven. Happy listening. He'd blown it, and he knew it, the memory still haunting him. He was clean now, but back then, well, 20 years old, good-looking, voice like an angel. Guitar playing like the devil. He still had that little note next to the other letter from Dean, his manager. It had been brutal. Words like embarrassing, unprofessional, sick, drunk, finished. He hadn't pulled his punches. And now here Frank was. Molly's Irish pub bar playing for nickels and dimes. He came from Shreveport originally, Louisiana. Not a promising start. Trailer trash, that's how they thought him at high school. Him and his brother Billy. Billy is carer, really. Always looking out for him, fighting for him, looking out for him. Their old man, a part-time barber, his old lady a cleaner, at the bus station. They'd fed him and Billy, but that was about it. The old man liked the bottle, she preferred the weed. Until eventually Frank drifted, Billy too. Petty crime, juvenile delinquency. Until that day, that amazing day. Frank could still see it in his mind, clear as starlight. He'd been in a bar and he'd seen a guitar player. Man, he was cool. The girls flocking to him. Frank bought his first guitar the very next day. 
His friends said he was like a man possessed and he was obsessive. Hours he'd practice till his fingers swelled and bled. He'd show them, he said, he'd show them all. And he had. His voice just developed. It's like a miracle. Sweet, rough, heartbreaking, joyous. That first gig, the county fair. Late night, last on stage. Summer, a perfect night. He'd stunned the crowd, his voice, his playing, his songs. He spoke to them and they listened. How they listened. Then his first small tour, that guy in Greenwood, the agent. Nothing special, just colleges, jump bars. Wherever they'd let him play, really. Then he'd met Sandy. She was a good girl, same age as him, in New Orleans, lower ninth yard. What a poor place that was. Crazy too. She had a shotgun house, long and thin. And they called it that because you could shoot a shotgun through it without hitting the wall. Best keep one by the bed, his neighbour told him. If him you want to live around here, boy. But Sandy was wild. She'd got him the tattoo, lucky seven. Her lucky number, she'd said. His now, kind of. It was a playing card in scarlet red on his right forearm. She'd shown him how to drink, to snort, to shoot up. And he'd written her songs, good songs, strong songs, somehow. And then Monty James happened, the famous promoter. He'd seen him in a jump joint. And Monty liked young boys, really young. But Frank didn't care, this was just business. He wasn't interested in Frank at all, not in that way. But he'd seen him blazing up the stage, the place going wild. And that was when the journey really started. He'd introduced him to Dean, Dean his manager. Monty had told Dean all about Frank. And Dean was an ex-Marine, now his new manager. Tough as leather. A real music lover, a smart guy. It was Dean that had cleaned him up, parted him from Sandy. She'd been turning tricks now. He hadn't been comfortable with that. But then that next tour. Better places, nothing huge, but good venues, good money. Back home, Billy was in jail again. All through that time, some botched gas station boost. He'd been shot through the leg. He walked with a limp now. And he'd sent a picture. He had a lucky seven tattoo now, the same as his brother Frank. And Frank wrote him regular, calling when he could. Then the old man died, car wreck, and the old lady, their mother, just disappeared. Up and left, the neighbour said, didn't leave no forward address. He thought of her from time to time, wrote songs about her. And then they got some radio plays. Of course, there was no internet back then, not like now. Internet hits, websites. This was the old days. The good old days, he'd thought. Live, raw, touring the highways and byways. Dean slowly growing a fan base, steadily. Frank was 21. The first good TV show had been in Birmingham, WVTM, Alabama. It was a local show, and it got picked up, syndicated, his piece, now shown on other channels. Dean was shrewd. We stay steady, he said get you around and they had a secret weapon and it was Monty James. Him and Dean went way back and Frank could never work out their relationship. Dean was a very straight guy, old school, tough, but Monty was the polar opposite, out of shape, fat, 
sexual predilections, devious. Frank didn't care. He just let it go. He just wanted to play. And then the first album deal. All Monty's string pulling. It had been mind-blowing. They'd recorded at Muscle Shoals, the legendary Muscle Shoals in Alabama. Dean had been so organised, the band lineup more than Frank could have ever dreamed of. He got the piano guy from Neil Young, the guitarist from The Flames, and Monty's connection seemed endless. Favours pulled in, left, right and centre, with Dean on it 100%. Dave Freeman had produced. Dave Freeman! the guy behind 20 top 10 hits that year. Everything was going to plan. Dean had been a hard taskmaster. He didn't take any shit from anyone, especially Frank. It was like joining the army, the guys in the band had joked. They had a printed schedule. But Dave and Dean had hit it off from the get-go. Both professional. A job to be done, they said. And boy, had they done that job. And they made the album. Lucky Seven, a picture of Frank at a card table on the front cover, his sleeves rolled up, showing his tattoo. He liked that photo. It was cool. His new girlfriend Maddie had taken it, and Dean liked her. He said she was a stabilising influence, and it was true. She was. A brilliant photographer. She came from the West Coast, real class. Her old man owned some big company. Manufacturing or something like that. They'd actually met at an airport. And Frank had seen her, and she was beautiful. He'd been captivated from the first second. Then he'd written a song for her, Maddie's song. And Dean actually said one day it would be a classic. He'd always liked that. Dean's faith in him, utterly unshakable. And then, of course, that day, that fateful day, the phone call in Dean's office, Atlantic Records. They'd picked the album up. Frank had nearly cried and he wrote to his brother Billy. He said when he get out, they'd celebrate. And the album was good. It was solid. Slowly the radio picked it up, Monty strings again, and then the money came in. Life was good and getting better. Maddie, Dean, Monty, the house, his first, the Chevy, more shows. Then the band formation, and through it all, Dean, completely in charge, he left Frank to make the music, I make the business. It was Dean who'd handpicked the boys, session men, young, talented. And they loved Dean, and of course they loved Frank. And Frank had loved them. They were his boys. And then came the baby, Maddie as surprised as him, little Frank. He'd married her, of course, her old man, none too subtle about it. But Frank was happy. Dean was happy. Maddie was happy, and life was good. Frank sat back in his chair. Molly's Irish pub bar was quiet, early yet. The regular crowd turning up around ten. It was only eight. He looked around, a few regulars scattered about. And then Stevie, the deputy manager, put a burger down. He pointed at his watch. Hey, Frankie, eat then? Play okay? He was a jerk. Everyone said so. There was no Molly. The place was owned by some Korean dude. He'd bought a bunch of them, themed bars. The sign outside said, Live Music. That was Frank. Not even his name. Just Live Music. 
He chewed his burger. He guessed he couldn't blame them. He was a nobody now. But then... He sipped his coke. He'd been clean 20 years now. Still went to AA religiously, never missed it. His apartment, a small block downtown, Rosedale, New York. He figured he'd get as far away from everything as he could. And someone had once said that anyone could disappear in New York and they were right. And so Frank had. He looked down at his tattoo. Lucky seven. Sandy. Her face coming to him. Smiling. Young. Hopeful. He pushed the memory away. They had been days. They had been days. And he glanced around the room. The small stage. The fake memorabilia. The Irish flags. The giant plastic leprechaun. The place a real shithole in truth. But popular. Frank felt warm. <laughs> the aircon on the fritz again. And it was summer. High heat. Not like back home, he thought. Not southern heat. <laughs> but this was his world now. He'd never go back. Nothing could change that. And nothing could change for him. Not for him, a guy like that. He was pretty much done now. He knew it. <sighs> it wasn't so bad. It's just the way it was. And he was bitching about it. It didn't change a damn thing. He'd had his break and he'd blown it. He sipped his drink again. Time to play. It had been Monty who called Dean to tell him the news. And Dean had gone ballistic with joy. This was the big one, he'd said. He told Frank, this was the big one. Live TV coverage, Drake Stadium, second on the bill, 60,000 seats. This was it for all of them, Dean had said. Everything they'd worked for, everything they'd rehearsed. Frank had thrown everything he had at it. He'd written new songs. He'd added a cellist for Maddie's song. And Frank had gifted that song, which Dean said he was crazy to do, to Maddie on their first wedding anniversary. And the song had always sold well. And Frank hadn't cared because he loved her. And that was all anyone needed to know. And then came that final week. Dean had an entire team now, a small army. And his office was run with military precision, nothing being left to chance. Lists, schedules, pickups, hotels, flight, clothes, hair, photographers. But Frank was above it all. He'd been told by Dean, just do your job. I'll do mine and we're going to blow this place apart. But then, the letter. That's what had done it. Some lawyer way out back home. Billy, out of prison one week. Dead, in a car wreck. A flamer. He'd only been identified from his tattoo. Lucky seven. His arm left outside the car. Billy had been his protector. His champion. All through growing up. And that had broken him. Frank had missed the gig. They found him two weeks later, in a motel, downtown. Two underage hookers, both 14, out of his head. Empty bottles, needle marks. Of course, it had been all over the papers, lurid headlines. Maddie had left. 
He'd been sued. Breach of contract. Basically, he'd fucked it all. Every which way a person could. Of course he tried to explain, to apologise, but nothing worked. Dean had dropped him, the label had dropped him, and the world had dropped him. And he dropped out. Broken and crawled inside a bottle and stayed there. He sighed and groaned. The New York night was still warm, the place now filling up. It was a good atmosphere. He'd gone through the first set, tried a couple of new songs, and his back always ached, and Frank peered through the bright spotlights. Some people had clapped, whistled. A little. That felt nice. Then he announced this was his last song before the break, and he shivered suddenly. Someone stepped on your grave, boy, the old man used to say. Yeah. He thought, and then flexed his fingers. He had a new guitar, a real beauty, he thought. He won it in a card game last week. Some weird Polish guy out. <laughs> no money. It was an old Martin, worth a few bucks probably. But it played well. Had a rich tone, responsive neck. And now Frank lowered his head and he glanced at his tattoo. Lucky seven. Hadn't brought him much luck, had it? And he shrugged. He strummed a chord. Shit, he thought. Why not? And then he started to play. Maddie's song. It still hurt. Even after all these years. But he let his fingers drift. Finding familiar places and shapes. His voice now soaring. God, he missed her. The thought of little Frank breaking his heart right in that moment. His son. His lost son. Of course, he'd be all grown up by now. And tears streamed down his face, the words tumbling from him, almost wrenched from his soul. The room went quiet. That was the first, he thought. Frank played on. He was in the zone, just like Dean used to say. And then he finished. And suddenly people stood up. They clapped and they whistled. And Frank seemed to come too, unsure of what had just happened. It had been like a shadow of the old times, bright now, and he stumbled from the stage, slightly in a daze. Wow, that felt like the old days, briefly. As he went back to his seat, two guys clapped him on the back and a woman took his picture. She said, it was so beautiful, just so beautiful. And he smiled and thanked her. And he went back to his booth and sat down. That had been unexpected, he thought. Hmm, weird. And that was when the young guy appeared. Twenty, maybe? Frank looked up at him. He was nicely dressed, a big smile on his face, and he held out his hand. Nice to meet you, sir, he said. That was awesome. Just awesome. Wow. His enthusiasm was infectious, and Frank smiled, and the kid paused. Sir? I don't want to bother you, but I run a radio station's internet. I know, I know, it ain't much, but we're growing real fast. We're up to 100,000 listeners now. The kid was hopping from foot to foot in excitement, his face now a big smile. Would you consider doing us a show? We do it here. He waved his hand around, live, record it, stream it online, you know, maybe video it. Let, let, let you be you, just like you did then. People really like that. 
They'll love what you do, sir. I can guarantee it. Well, what do you say? Frank sat, speechless. Him? Video? On the radio? Again? He shook the kid's hand, nodding. Yeah, why the hell not? It couldn't hurt. Maybe it'd get that jerk Stevie off his back. Bring in some extra custom. Behind the bar, Rosalita waved. She had his lemonade ready. They had a pleasant arrangement and she winked and laughed. Frank looked at the kid and he looked straight into Frank's eyes. Innocent, enthusiastic, gleamingly bright. And then Frank smiled again. Oh, uh, it's Frank, he said. Frank James. But nothing registered on the kid's face. Ta, figures thought Frank. It's way too young, before his time. I'm just ancient history. And the kid nodded. Oh, sir, cool, cool. It's a pleasure to meet you. My name's Billy. Billy Seven. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Everybody here really likes that story. I mean, they have to sit and listen to me read it. But often people do ask me, where did the idea for many of the stories, and including that one, come from? And I'll have to confess, I actually watched a documentary, I won't say on who, but it was a really well-known musician whose career just crumbled because he did a load of really dumb things. It was his own fault. But in a kind of, I don't know, poetic justice at the end, he started to get rediscovered again. And I thought, that is a cool real-life story, and I can turn it into a fiction story. So that's where that actually comes from. Anyway, if you're up for it, here comes your next adventure. And this one is called Frozen. No, not the musical, not the kid's song. It's Frozen, and it's a pretty groovy story. And of course, the usual spoiler alert. Anything, anything is possible. The laboratory was cooled, and on the autopsy bed, Klaus carefully tugged at the decomposed leather. Copper age, hunter, male, incredibly well preserved. High Alps, found on the upper slopes, in a glacier melt, by two climbers, amateur. It had caused a sensation. A camera flashed behind him, more photographs, the body now laying on its front, its face like leather, mummified, buried in the ice, preserved. It was incredible. The first report had contained extraordinary detailed information, He'd been killed, a deep burn mark, an axe slash across his abdomen, clean and precise, the back of his skull heavily fractured, possibly the fatal blow. They couldn't tell yet. He'd been approximately 30 years of age. He'd eaten recently, and he had over 50 tattoos and marks on his body, typical of the period, a live record in a way. The other researchers said he'd died at the end of summer, and it was a fascinating list. They'd really gone to town. They'd nicknamed him Buddy, some wag, and the name had stuck. Even some magazines taken to calling him that. But now it was coming up for the big day. The first public exhibition. And the museum director, Dr Schultz, had been in twice that morning. She looked as if she was about to burst, poor thing. Her excitement palpable. Everyone agreed. He was an extraordinary thing. Poor old Buddy, a window on a world long vanished. They dated him to being around 3219 and 3230 BC, a pretty precise estimate, 
their techniques getting more exact year on year, and Klaus had glanced up. Dr. Schultz, his boss, back again. <laughs> he smiled. She couldn't keep away. She really was a striking woman, he thought. Tall and blonde, very photogenic, and all the magazines loved her. And now she peered through her face visor, and he nodded and grinned. He didn't want to stop now, and she looked at him, her voice hushed. New tattoos, Klaus? Her voice a low whisper, keen not to disturb him, and he nodded briefly. It was her who set the schedule. But so much had been discovered already by the other teams. But he'd asked for this task, the cataloguing, the identification of the body markings. That was his specialist area. There were, of course, lots of these markings. Buddy had been a very busy boy, or someone else had on his behalf. He moved his scalpel, and Klaus held his breath. Dr. Schultz now watching him. He was a brilliant man, a fine technician, exact, precise, young, and going places. She watched in fascination, knowing the problems he was facing. The combination of the leather clothing, the compacting ice and skin cell collapse, meant Buddy's skin had almost merged with his leather coverings. He'd worn a selection of clothing, a hat, a cape, a jacket, trousers, leggings. He was certainly dressed for snow, so heavily wrapped up. On his back he had a bow with a quiver of flint-headed arrows, a copper axe, a bone knife. All in all, he'd been heavily armed, very heavily armed for a hunter. Clearly, though, that was who he was. And of course, speculation was rife. Hundreds of theorists swirling around on the internet. Why'd he been so high up? What was he hunting? Why did he have so many weapons? Who had killed him? Her favourite headline had been, What Killed Buddy? It had a ludicrous picture of a Tyrannosaurus Rex next to him and a writer only fueling the maddest of theories, and she sighed. Science was good, but they would probably never know. The three lead speculations were rival hunters, that being the most common. A territorial dispute between tribes and maybe a ritualistic sacrifice. Her preference being a territorial dispute. There was so much evidence from that period. Bodies killed in battles and skirmishes all around the region. She watched. Admittedly, they were much lower down the mountains, those bodies. But food is acquisition. That was paramount. Survival in those days, the name of the game. The year, the time of the hunter-gatherer. Klaus looked up. He muttered something. According to the contents of Buddy's stomach, he'd eaten grain and seeds just the day before. Meat too. That was only a given. He was, of course, a hunter, a trapper. His other tools showed that. Two rawhide snares on his belt area. And the tattoos around him weren't unexpected either. All humans of that period carried marks, rituals it seemed, indicators of their beliefs, moons and stars and trees. Buddy's tattoos were made with fireplace ash or soot, with small incisions being made, something sharp, a flint or a bone, and then ash had been rubbed into the wounds. Again, other ideas had been put forward, and she found one very interesting, and that was they discovered poor Buddy had both skin and stomach issues, some of the marks being potentially added as a kind of healing attempt, magic. She smiled, 
a well-known professor in Italy had come forward with a very detailed report to even support the idea. Poor old buddy. She looked down at his face, grotesque and twisted and leathery. Incredible, just to think. He'd once been a living, breathing human, with hopes and dreams, maybe a family. Life must have been hard then, and plus he had health issues. And she looked back up at the screen. Klaus now delicately separating the leather from the body. His fine scalpel work delicately slicing between the layers. He really was good. His hand steady as a rock. Now he exposed more skin, and above them a camera flashed. Foot operated. Maria, the other team member. A very quiet girl, shy even, but equally brilliant. She smiled at her. Dr Schultz liked having other women around. She said it broke up the boys' club, and she'd fought so hard against that. Her becoming director hadn't been easy, but she was her mother's daughter, never taking no for an answer. Ambition. Power. She knew how to work the system. Beside her, the second screen went to close-up. Maria, moving and refocusing the sharp lens of the camera. And now, new scored lines were appearing. Circles too. Both Buddy's arms marked. A bird, a tree. His chest images gathered during the last week. A depiction of a hunt. Simple stuff, crude, a deer. Stick men, arrows, spears. But delicately drawn, considering. Red rubbed in for blood. A kill. She smiled to herself and thought of her own tattoo. A little mermaid on the small of her back. She'd had it done when she was 20 in America at her first convention. And it always made her smile. Then her old professor's face came into her head. Professor Feldman. His lectures on tattoos and markings. What was that thing you always said? The ink never lies. It couldn't. It was permanent on the found corpse's skin, from Egypt to Mexico to India, all the same, marks, fixed, a truth, a message from the past, a record of what went on, or what they believed. She smiled at the old man's memory. He'd really been like a father to her, and she looked back to the screen. They'd better get a move on. The exhibition was just a month away now, but everything else had been done. The exhibit area was ready, the literature, the explanations, and no expense had been spared. The museum had really gone to town. And such was the public interest, tickets had been sold out by booking only. It had been incredible. They'd never had that. But now, there they were, sold out for six months already. Of course, there were other questions still left unanswered about Buddy. His tattoos, blow-ups of them, explanations, answers... But always the big one. What had killed him and what was he doing up so high in the Alps? That was the detective part, she called it. But a twinge of conscience ran through her. There was a fine line between education and entertainment. She knew that. She'd assured the museum directors the public would flock and flock they had because money was money. It paid salaries. It gave them time for more research. And it didn't hurt to sensationalise it a bit, she felt. The marketing people had really been on her back since day one, and the trustees. Maybe the tattoos held a clue? Klaus thought they might reveal something, a vital bit of missing information. But she knew one thing. 
She loved forensic archaeology. It had been her passion. It had an ability, she thought, to explain history. Then her phone hummed in her pocket. Never a moment's peace. And quickly she left the laboratory, wondering what the day would hold. Her office was cool and the air conditioning now silent. That had been a very long afternoon. She had had to host four professors from Milan. Nice guys, one a bit patronising, the other's fine. It was always like that. Men, typical. Then she glanced up. Someone was knocking. Come, she said. She really liked being the director. Her mother was so proud. All those years of study paying off. Her brilliant thesis. Her work on the pharaoh's groundbreaking. And she looked up and smiled. It was her team, Klaus and Maria. And she waved them to sit. They stared at her. Okay then, guys. What's going on? What do you have for me? She smiled as they both said nothing. Well, don't sit there looking at me like that. Come on, spit it out then. Klaus frowned. He looked at his feet and coughed. Well, um, he looked at Maria. You know we've been looking at his back, the final tattoo area? She nodded. Yes. Well, it was really tricky. You know that because of the decomposition. But we found something that... Um, Klaus glanced at Maria, who nodded imperceptibly, and then she stopped. Klaus interrupted. Look, I don't know how we can say this any other way, but we think we know what killed Buddy. We think. Dr. Schultz sat up. This was amazing. If they had this right, this would ensure the exhibition ran for a year at least. And she thought of the revenue coming in. But Klaus suddenly stood up, and now he began to pace about, running his hands through his hair. Um, look, I'll give you everything we have. We all know that tribal markings had a range of meanings. Koblenz and Marchetti's guide, that helps us, yeah? They're the go-to guys on tattoo markings, we all agree. Everyone nodded. Yes, I'd agree, said Dr. Schultz. But Klaus looked agitated. Right, right, okay. Now we know that Buddy's tattoos are of that definitive period. Yep, we found them on other preserved specimens. The doctor leaned forward. Where was he going with this? And he carried on. Plus, we all agree it was unusual that Buddy was so heavily armed for a standard hunter. And also, we all agree he was found way higher up than he should have been. I mean, there was no prey up there. And the air would have been thin. So why was he there? Yes, 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 she said. And he carried on. Look, taking into account his marks of the age they are, being added year on year, and we know they're a record in some ways, a record of life. Maria smiled hesitantly and interrupted. And we found samples of the fire ash used to colour the marks. We've tested them. They're consistent with tree growth type lower down the valley. Likely be from the settlement where Buddy lived. OK. We have a problem. The doctor looked at them both, slightly amazed. They were never like this. They were so calm, so consistent. And then she listened. The band played softly in a far corner and flash guns went off. It was launch day and the main exhibition hall was packed. Two celebrity TV presenters chattering to cameras. It was a success. Everyone said so. 
The exhibition, absolutely riveting. The public cramming to see. It was compelling, the Chief of Trustees had told her. And two new sponsors had come forward, keen to jump on the bandwagon. Some hedge fund and an airline, they didn't care. Their revenue was absolutely needed. And that support, highly generous, he said. Now they were talking about a tour, Europe-wide, with Buddy. Maybe even go to America, a new documentary. And Dr Schultz sipped her champagne. The papers said she was the darling of the scientific community. She'd scored, she knew, big on two points. An educational exhibition. More importantly, a big bag of ongoing research funding. The two holy grails of the world she lived in. But then her mind drifted back to that afternoon with Klaus and Maria. It had been shortly afterwards they'd both been promoted, with increased salaries, and no one had questioned her. Rewarding excellence, she said. But it hadn't really been about excellence. It had been about so much more. And it was Klaus had started the thought they'd be a laughing stock. That's what he said to her, a laughing stock around the world, with all their careers being destroyed. No one would take them seriously. And Maria had nodded in complete agreement. She was a clever girl, a great intellect. The ink never lies. That's what Professor Feldman had drilled into her. It's fixed, unchangeable. It's a truth. She took another sip of her champagne, guilt stealing through her. Science, facts, truth. That was her whole life. But it was that last tattoo, the one across Buddy's back, the pictures of which were now in a file, a hidden file. They'd all agreed. Klaus had simply put the leathery pieces of skin back into place. You couldn't see they'd been touched. And his report said unnecessary damage would occur. And the doctor had signed off on it. Because... Well, it was impossible. On Buddy's back, clear as day. Another hunt scene. Black ash, red pigment, sharp. There were hunters, arrows, axes, stickmen. Some kind of spaceship. Many tentacled things. Red fire under the ship. Aliens. This was no hunt. It was a fight for survival, and Buddy had lost, but mankind had won. Well, I hope that one caught you by surprise, and I guess it's kind of one for the conspiracy theorists when you think about it. But anyway, before I prattle on again, it's the final story today, and it's called The Kindly Art. And this one's unusual because it's actually a true story. I mean, honestly, this really happened. And I've often found that the real world is often more stranger than fiction. And that is a fact. I'd known Billy for years. I mean, he was a bass player and a re really good one. Anyway, I got booked to do some gigs in Germany because that's where I was playing now. And the guy I normally worked with wasn't around. So I called Billy up and said, did he fancy a little tour? He said he did. And off we went. And it was kind of pretty cool. Now, my German band... And they were really, really great guys. And they obviously spoke brilliant English and brilliant German and stuff. And at that point, I have to confess, and I'm slightly embarrassed, my German was pretty rubbish. I mean, it's not brilliant now, but I could basically have a bit of a conversation and understand. But sometimes, obviously, they would all start talking in German. 
And I'd sit there kind of a bit bored because I couldn't really join in. So on this particular tour, it was great because I had Billy, so sort of two guys from England, so we could just chat. So if the band drifted off into German, we'd just continue talking. So it was kind of pretty pleasant. Anyway, most nights we'd go out, always after a gig. And then that was when this story came to me. We'd done a gig, I can't remember where, but it had been pretty late and we'd all been sitting downstairs in the hotel, all staying in the same hotel. And gradually everybody else had gone off to bed and then Billy was sitting there and then he said, do you want to hear a story? And this is what he told me. He reckoned he'd been around seven years old, him and his brother, I think his brother was a couple of years older. And they lived at home and they were a very happy family. Mum was a stay-at-home mum and dad was a salesman for some big, big brewery company. And the year was around 1986. And I heard this story in about 2000, I think. Anyway, things were going well. And then his mum got very ill. Now, remember, you know, back in 1998, as if it was a million years ago. But this is 1986. But, you know, there were kind of hospitals were struggling even back then. But things were okay. You know, they had health insurance, they had the national health. And they started to treat the mum and she got a bit better. But when she came out of hospital, she really wasn't like 100% and she needed some help. So the dad sat him down one day and his brother and said, right, you're going to be big boys. You're going to have to help mum. I'm busy. Because what the dad's main job was, was to travel around England like a, not a traveling salesman, but he was like a representative. And he'd go to trade shows and hotels and he'd sell the products from the brewery as in quite big amounts to these people. And that's how he made his money. So anyway... Things carry along for a bit longer, but now the mother gets a bit sicker. Now, she doesn't have to go to hospital, but she has to kind of stay in a room and lay down and she's exhausted all the time. And that's when the dad turns up, talks to Bill and his brother and says they need some help. And apparently he has a sister. They've never heard that he had a sister, but she lives in Norfolk. He's had a chat with her and now she's coming up to help when he has to go away. So the kids are pretty excited. They didn't even know they had an auntie. So now they get an auntie. So the dad then tells them a slightly, well, he said we believed it because we were kids. But it turned out that she apparently had married a black guy. Now, at that time, when she'd married this guy, Britain was a pretty racist place and the family didn't like it. He was an American serviceman, pretty high up. He was a captain or something, but they didn't like it. And she thought, that their dad had not sided with her enough and they just stopped talking. Anyway, time had passed and a few months earlier she'd sent a letter, he'd written back and now they were kind of affecting some kind of reunion and he told her about his problems with his wife and that's when she'd made the offer. And so that was what was going to happen. Now they understood how the arrangement would work because their dad would often go away for weeks, sometimes a month at a time on these giant kind of sales missions he had and obviously their mum needed some help and they were just kids they did their best anyway they got really excited and then the dad said auntie Kathleen was coming that weekend so finally the big day arrives dad has to go on the Friday but he said don't worry auntie Kathleen will be here true to form Saturday morning 10 o'clock onto their drive a brand new bright red MGB sports car and it looks so cool and out of it gets this really elegant woman who knocks on the door they open the door and she says hello I'm Auntie Kathleen and it is wonderful she was just a 
he couldn't explain it. He smiled as he told me this part of the story. The mum was so pleased. He was pleased. His brother was pleased. And within, I don't know, we reckoned a couple of days, it was just like she'd been there all their lives. And she was super efficient. She was immaculate. Her makeup, he said she looked like a film star. And best of all, she had a sports car. She took them to football, to the swimming, to school. Frankly, he said, she was just brilliant. And of course, him and his brother were really excited to have a new auntie. Apparently, there were no relatives on his mum's side. She was an only child. And his dad and her parents were both dead. Anyway, days pass, weeks pass. Occasionally, Aunt Kathleen has to go shooting off back to go and see her family. But she always returns. And then, of course, one day, she says, I'm off. Your father's back tomorrow. And life carried on as normal. One thing he said, which was really funny, was just how happy the dad was they got on with their auntie Kathleen. Because he said she was a really lovely woman and he didn't want her upset. And of course, they weren't going to do that because they told him they adored her. So, as a young guy, he had explained to me that essentially, although life had got a little bit dark, suddenly it got so much brighter. The mum and auntie Kathleen were like, best friends and they would go out together and even when auntie Kathleen went home she would always phone every couple of days just to check that everyone was all right and then Billy said something really interesting to me because he said it was amazing how mum he said she just felt better and better you know her illness seemed to be getting better because auntie Kathleen worked really hard so she didn't have to do a thing or lift a finger anyway Turns out there's a giant exhibition in Scotland. Dad has to go away for a month and, true to form, Auntie Kathleen rocks up. But on this trip, she says to them that sadly it could be the last time because her and her husband were going to return to America. Now, Billy said him and his brother had a bit of a cry and it was a big kind of family thing because they loved her. She was the best auntie in the world. Weeks passed. Auntie Kathleen was there. Off she goes. A couple of days later, Dad comes back. He is very sad as well. Yes, she's got to go back to America. Her husband has to be, he's in the army. He's been obviously sent back to some base. And so finally, Auntie Kathleen gives them a phone call. All big crying. We're going to write, she says. We're going to see each other again. And then that was it. Auntie Kathleen left for America. And now the months passed. And occasionally they get a letter from Auntie Kathleen. But over the years, he said, they got less and less. Until one day, she didn't write at all. But he said he was about 16, then he was 17, and it kind of faded from his memory, and then life just carried on. But he told me he'd never forgotten her. He'd thought about her all of his life. And then one day, he's on a tour when he gets a phone call. And none of us, when you're on a tour, want that phone call. And this one was his dad has had a stroke. The guy was really ill. So he has to fly back. I think he was in France somewhere. And he has to call his brother Jess. And so they meet at the hospital. So there they are. Mum's at home. She's not very well. And now dad's not very well in the hospital. So they're sitting there. And he starts to talk about Auntie Kathleen. And his brother is kind of looking at him in a kind of weird way. Now, a thing you need to know about Jess. Jess had moved to Jersey years before. And they'd always had a fractious a good relationship but a bit fractious and he reckoned he had a kind of aspergery side to him he was a very serious guy he wasn't very funny or humorous and he took things very very literally so anyway there they both were sitting in some hospital room with their dad 
he was going to get well. He wasn't going to die, but he was you know, not in a really brilliant way. And they decide to go outside and get a cup of tea. And that was when Jess comes out with it. He looked at him, he said, and he just laughed. And Billy said, I was really confused. Because then Jess said, what do you mean Auntie Kathleen? And that was when he dropped the bombshell. Because Jess explained to him that Auntie Kathleen had in fact been their dad. And then he went on to say that he kind of pretty much guessed it. And he figured that Billy knew and was just playing along with him. It turned out their dad was in fact a cross-dresser. And he got great pleasure from dressing and acting like a woman. Now, their mum apparently knew all about it. But back in the 70s, it was a kind of thing you just didn't talk about and nobody really mentioned. There was no public acceptance or understanding. And of course, that's when somehow this couple, the dad, they'd amazingly hit upon some elaborate plan that he could live even temporarily as a woman. And he'd set it up so really cleverly. All the neighbours knew about his sister, their auntie Kathleen. He told everybody at work. And of course, finally, he'd gone and then auntie Kathleen had arrived to help the sick mum. But of course, it turned out it wasn't auntie Kathleen at all. It was his dad in a wig and a dress and makeup in a shiny brand new sports car. Rather glamorous arriving a day after the dad had apparently left on a business trip. And of course, everyone that met her said Auntie Kathleen was charming. She was quiet, she was polite and kind, and very importantly, she was also looking after a sick woman, which made her in everyone's eyes a kind of saint, and especially in Billy's eyes, but not the brother. Because Jess reckoned that he had got it from day one, but didn't want to say anything because he was worried about upsetting Billy. Now, Billy couldn't quite believe this, and he, he told Jess, but what about school and scouts and everything like that? But the dad had fooled everyone because he was just brilliant at it. He looked the part. He sounded different. That was the key. He sounded different, but of course, he looked very similar to Auntie Kathleen. So people said, yeah, brother and sister. Why not? They understood that. But finally, according to Jess, the dad had started to get a bit more worried that maybe he'd be discovered. And that was when he decided to end Auntie Kathleen by sending her to America with her husband. But just briefly, six months, eight months, he lived out his fantasy, the dream of being a woman. And importantly, he felt no one had been hurt. Now, the more Billy had thought about it, he said, it suddenly made sense. And finally, he confronted their mother, and she said it was true. But then amazingly, she had said to Billy, he couldn't tell his father he knew. And she said she loved his dad and he loved her. They'd never stopped. And she knew about his funny little ways, but it had never stopped her adoring him. And that was the whole point. Nothing could change that. He was a great husband and a father. And that, she said, was enough for anyone. There I am in a bar, hotel, talking to a guy about a time when he was a kid and his dad had pretended to be a woman, which was pretty amazing. And also I felt incredibly privileged that he'd actually felt strong enough in my friendship with him to tell me such a really personal story. But if I'm honest, I think love was the key there. It was just love. And 
What a thing to hear. And yeah, it's surprising as I tell you guys this story, because life's so much more complex and staggering than even my imagination ever comes up with. And yeah, it's a strange story. But whatever way you look at it, it's a love story. Now, I know I'm a storyteller, and I know all my friends know I'm a storyteller. And so I guess in some ways, that's why they probably tell me these stories. And sometimes I tell stories, personal stories about my life to my close friends that I would never really tell to anybody or set down or write. And so my true story section, and I'm sorry to be repeating myself, is a section, I think, that shows me that whatever I do, whatever I say, wherever I go, I'm going to come across stories, real stories, true stories about people that are going to be weird and wonderful and strange, but never really bad and never really harmful. There's kindness and there's love, I think, in every single story. And most importantly, I think they're entertaining and they'll show you that life is always, always amazing. Now, do listen in every week. There's always new Story Hive episodes just humming away down here. And as I said before, this bunch of stories, specially curated, comes from the Story Hive. So do go and have a little look at us. And if you can say a like or a smile or something on our media platforms, we'd really appreciate it. It's pretty tough being a creator nowadays, but we're not complaining. This is the life we chose. So, as I always say, before I say goodbye, I think of something. And today it's, I hope your day goes well and the world lets you smile a bit more. Bye now. Thank you.